As we've been going through Luke's gospel, gospel, the feeding of the 5,000 was the end of what is commonly known as the great Galilean ministry. Up to this point, Jesus had been patiently leading his disciples to an appreciation of who he is and what he could do in and through them. Now he has reached that goal. And so as they begin to make their final journey to Jerusalem, the Lord will now move on to prepare them for what's to come. And what is that? The cross. In this next section that we're going to be reading this morning, that we're going to be covering, we're going to see Jesus teach his disciples three basic lessons about his person, his sacrifice, and his kingdom. Now, this morning I've titled this message The Truth About Jesus because we're going to be getting essentially three perspectives about this topic and about Jesus. And we're going to dive in. We're going to discover which one of these matters the most, what the truth is about Jesus. So before we get into God's word, let's ask him to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, in this last service of 2019, we are so thankful that you brought us to this point, Lord, that everyone is here today to, to hear this message that you've prepared from a long, a long time ago, Lord. I pray that your spirit work powerfully here this morning, um, that you will soften hearts and minds, Lord, that you will use this message to transform lives, that you will use this message to give new meaning, new perspective to people's lives, whether they're here or whether they're listening online, Lord. I pray for those that also may be watching that this message will also speak to them loudly and clearly and profoundly, Lord. Use me as your vessel, Lord. Use me as your instrument and they speak your truth. Again, we're so thankful you've brought us here this morning. Speak to us now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and we'll be picking up in verse 18. And the word of God says this. While he was praying in, pri- in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. Still others, that, that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. But he strictly warned and instructed them not to tell this to no one, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day or the third day. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow me, follow after me, 
let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses it or loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Well, after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, the scene then shifts to a moment of solitude, a moment of private prayer that the Lord was having. Now, although it says that the disciples were with him, it's unclear whether this means that they joined him in prayer or if they were just <coughs> with him nearby uh, while he was praying. In either case, when Jesus is done praying, he asks them a simple yet stirring question. Who do the crowds say that I am? Here's the thing. He wasn't asking this question because he was ignorant on this point and needed information from his disciples. He wasn't going out. He wasn't asking them to see, find out for me what, what they're saying or I want to, what do they think about me? What are they saying about me? No, he, he was asking because, see, he would use this question to introduce a more important follow-up question. Well, they told him about the several theories that were going around, which, interestingly, was the same ones that we learned Herod had heard in verses 7 and 8. Some said that he was John the Baptist. Others said Elijah. And still others said that one of the Old Testament prophets had come back. If a poll had been taken at that time, the results probably would have shown that the majority of the Jews would rather believe that God had brought an ancient hero back to life to carry out his plans and purpose and directions than to believe that Jesus, that man that was born in Bethlehem, was the Messiah. As I was thinking about polls and I was thinking about that, or thinking about that scenario, what that would look like, I was curious. So I did some research and I wanted to find out what people today were saying. And so I did a little bit of research, not a lot, but I was surprised what I did find uh, from a poll that was taken back in April 2015. I won't get all into it, but uh, there's one thing that, that stood out to me. There, millennials, were, it says that millennial, millennials are the only generation um, among whom f fewer than half believe Jesus was God. That's 48%. 
about one-third of young adults, 35%, say instead, of, instead that Jesus is merely a religious, spiritual leader, well, 17% aren't sure what he was. Again, that's interesting because it tells you, even though this poll was taken in 2015 and it was from Barna, it tells you again where, what people's opinions are, what people are thinking. And, and as these young adults are starting to become adults with families of their own, I can only, I can only imagine these numbers growing even, even more. Again, it tells us that even now, people have differing opinions about Jesus. People aren't willing to accept, to believe that he was the Son of God. Again, only 48% of millennials believe that Jesus was God. Well, here, again in our story, regardless of what the rumors were, or even what the majority might have thought, whether they liked it or not, the truth was this. With the exception of Elijah, and you can read about that story in Second Kings chapter 2, in chapter 2 and, and specifically in verse 11, all those pro- prophets that were mentioned had all died. You mentioned again Elijah. He technically didn't die. He, the story is that he, he went to heaven in a chariot of fire. Again, in any, in any case, yes, Jesus was a prophet. However, he was more than just a prophet. John the Baptist and the greatest prophet confirmed this when he pointed out to Jesus, when he pointed to Jesus as someone greater than himself. Unfortunately, though, even though there were many in the crowd who had seen the miracles, heard the teachings, they couldn't grasp the mystery of the kingdom, nor the identity of the one whom that kingdom was present. Now again, let me again mention that the only reason he asked that initial question was to set up the question that he really wanted to ask his disciples. The Lord looked at them, at all 12 of them, and asked them, but you, who do you say that I am? See, Jesus knew what people were saying about him. And he was okay with that. It, it, it didn't bother him that they thought he, he was someone else or they thought he was a, a prophet or, or someone raised from the dead. That wasn't, that was expected. He was expecting that. And he had heard those, he probably had heard those rumors as well. Again, these, a lot of these people didn't have a personal encounter with him. The disciples, on the other hand, They'd been with him at least for a couple of years. They ate with him. They laughed with him. They traveled with him. They slept in the same campground. You know, they, they were just together all the time. 
and they knew him on a more personal level. So this being the case, the Lord wanted to know what they all personally believed about him. Well, Luke tells us that Peter, good old Peter, was the one who spoke up and responded back by saying that he was God's Messiah. What did that mean? What does this mean? Well, in other words, he, was de- he declared verbally that he sincerely believed in his heart that Jesus was the promised Redeemer spoken about all, over the, all throughout the Old Testament. The Messiah from the heart of God, not the Messiah from the desire of man. Now, one of the best ways that I've found of really understanding, finding out the spiritual temperature of a person, I don't start off by asking them if they believe in Jesus or if they even have a personal relationship with him. But I really want to find out who they are, what they, what's really in their heart, what they really believe, their where they stand theologically and where they are spiritually, all I have to ask them is, who do you say Jesus is? And I encourage you to, to try it out. Try it out with a family member, with a friend, with a coworker, the classmate. Who, and just ask, who do you say Jesus is? And you may get all kinds of different responses. Oh, he was a good teacher. He was a prophet. You know, he was, he was a good, I don't know, uh, a good spiritual person that gave good spiritual advice. But every once in a while, you will hear Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God. And if that's your answer, if that's your response, then you're more than likely you're in the right, on the right direction. You're on the right path. But if you're, late, you're ever laying in bed late at night and you're looking up at the ceiling and you ask yourself that question, what you answer again will say a lot about where your heart is. Who do you believe? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he your savior? Is he your God? Is he your companion? Is he your helper? Is he your rock? Is he your, is he your strong tower? Is he your Lord and savior? That answer again will reveal a lot. And if you're witnessing, if you're sharing the gospel, or if you're just having a conversation, it will be a good guide. It will be a good way to, to, to lead you and guide you into how that conversation will go. Now, upon hearing 
um, Peter's confession, our Lord strictly warned and instructed them not to mention this to no one. Many of you are probably asking, well, why not? This is important. This, is, this needs to go out there. Why was he telling him? Why was he telling them, don't say anything? Stay quiet about it. Well, this is the reason why. It wasn't the proper time yet. And he didn't want anything to interrupt his pathway to the cross. There was still more that needed to be said and more that needed to be done. See, the only way the crowds would be able to realize who Jesus truly was and understand the reason he came depended upon the completion of his mission. But in order for the crowds to get it, the disciples had to learn the entire redemption story first. They needed to get it. They needed to see it, understand it, believe in it themselves first. William Barclay said this, before they can preach that Jesus was the Messiah, they had to learn what that meant. And then, after saying that the Messiah, Jesus, unveiled his own immediate future to them, he must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the religious leaders of Israel. He must be killed. And he must be raised on the third day. Suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection was what they had to look forward to. Hearing him say that would have both shocked them and confused them. See, this wasn't at all what the disciples or even any, and even many of his followers were expecting or wanted at all. In their minds, they were hoping that Jesus would rise up as their national and political Messiah and that he would rescue them from their Roman oppressors, that he would usher in an earthly kingdom and that all will be crushed by some kind of military rule, that he would be powerful and strong and, and he would be that hero that everyone was envisioning in their minds. The last thing they were expecting was for him to be a suffering servant. Again, this must have been demoralizing. For what they were failing to understand was that the Messiah, that the Messiah in their mind was different from the Messiah in God's mind. Had they known this, had they understood this, it wouldn't have shocked them that God's will for his, for his son involved suffering, rejection, death, and a resurrection to life that is deathless. And as we'll see later on, 
this wouldn't be the only time he'd prepare them for what's to come. Well, after outlining his own future, the Lord continues to use that time to instruct his disciples on the meaning of following him. He begins by making a public declaration in verse 23. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's important to keep in mind here that he's referring, here he's referring to discipleship and not sonship. You see, many times when believers read this, they fail to make that distinction. We need to remember that we aren't saved from our sins because, because we take up a cross and follow Jesus, but because this, we trust in the Savior who died on the cross for our sins. After saving us, we first become God's children, and then we become his disciples. Now, if you look at that verse carefully, our Lord tells us that a true disciple will be known by these four characteristics. He or she must have a desire to want to follow after him. This isn't a forced action, but rather a willful, willful choice that you decided to make. Again, he says there, if anyone wants to follow after me. He's not going to force you. He's not going to say, he's not going to, you know, forcefully pull you to, to come follow him. It's a desire that you're going to have, that you're going to have to want to follow him. It's a willful choice. Secondly, second characteristic of a true disciple, he or she must practice self-denial. What this means is, and this is going to be hard for some people, letting go of your right to do what you want to do and be who you want to be. Letting go of all those things are going to enhance you, the things that are going to please you, and instead surrender all areas of your life to Jesus, allowing him to be the Lord of your life, allowing him, coming to him and letting him lead you in the direction you should go, in the choices you should make getting into his word and and seeing what the right decision is when it comes to a fork in that fork in the road that, that you're facing. Whether it be quitting that job or whether it's you know leaving your spouse, whether it's gambling the last of your paycheck away, um whether it's committing adultery with somebody. Surrendering it all. Letting go of your own selfish desires of what you want for yourself. 
and allowing God to be the ruler of your life and allowing him to shape and transform you into the person that you're meant to be, that he wants you to be. Characteristic number three of a true disciple. He or, he or she must show dedication by taking up their cross daily. This means that you've made the deliberate choice to live the kind of life he lived, which, again, will involve rejection, persecution, suffering, and yes, maybe even possibly death. This isn't to suggest that we can't choose our way to die. A, a, we can choose our way to die a living death as followers of Jesus. But as the unchosen circumstances come into life, we choose to bear them as a way to daily die for Jesus' glory. And lastly, the characteristic of a true disciple, he or she must accept direction by him as they follow him. What this means is that if you have made that commitment and if you said, yes, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, then it's committing again to obey him and to follow his lead. Back in Luke chapter 6, Jesus said this, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Maybe this isn't the right analogy, but I'm thinking, you know, a Jedi Knight and a Padawan. You have to, you have to listen. You have to follow the master. And that master is Jesus. He will guide you. He will show you. He will train you in the proper way to live. How to live for him. How to live selfishly or selflessly. How to be yourself. How to, again, take up a, what it means to take up a cross daily. Allowing him to lead you. Now, our Lord then explains in verses 24 through 26 that the motivation, he, yeah, he, that's, that's what he does next. He, he then explains there that the motivation of a true disciple can, now, can be found in three principles. And again, I'll explain that in just a minute. Again, the first part, he explains what the um, four, char four characteristics of a true disciple. Here now, he explains what the motivation is of a true disciple disciples um, are, are found in these three principles. The first principle is this. Disciples live not for their own sakes, but for Christ's sake. In other words, if you want to follow him, you must lay down your devotions to this world and live for Christ and his mission. It does sound strange to say this, 
You will never live until you walk your death with Jesus. But that's the idea. You can't gain resurrection life without dying first. Here's another example. You don't lose a seed when you plant it. Although it appears dead and that you're burying it. In truth, you set it free to be what it was always intended to be. The second principle is this. A disciple gives up the world, if necessary, for Christ. As the disciple talked with the twelve, he realized that the desire for material riches might be a powerful deterrent against full surrender. People say that money can buy anything. You put, the right, you put the right number in front of them, and they're willing to do anything for that amount. Jesus understood this principle. He understood that for a lot of people, this is true. So what he was doing here is that he was explaining that no matter how wealthy you become, no matter how wealthy a person is, no matter how much money or possessions or power you have, no matter what, if a person gains the whole world and he doesn't have Christ, he will be bankrupt eternally or forfeit himself. Again, if he doesn't, if he or she doesn't have Christ. You look at the, the Forbes top 500, whatever the number is, of billionaires. Yeah, they may have all the riches. They may have all the toys and all the cool stuff, and they may look like they're living the luxur- luxurious life, and they have it made. And But one day, the end is going to come. And for many of them, they're going to look back and see It's all for nothing. This isn't doing that isn't doing anything for right for them right now, and it's not going to do anything for them in the future after they die. Yeah, they might have lived. They might have had a great time, whether it was you know, 70, 80 years of their life. But eternally, they'll be lost forever. They have forfeited themselves. If you think about it, 70 years, 80 years, the average lifespan of a person is this small compared to eternity. And the third principle that motivates a true disciple is this. A disciple knows that being ashamed of Christ will bring shame by Christ. It's completely irrational for a creature to be ashamed of his creator, for a sinner to be 
ashamed of his Savior. And yet, are any of us blameless? I know in the past, sadly, and it, and it breaks my heart that I've made that mistake of saying, yeah, he was, he was a good guy. He was, you know, a good teacher. I didn't want people to know. I didn't want people to I was, honestly, I, I, there was a time when I was ashamed. And as I read this verse, again, it, it's heartbreaking. And, and if that's where you are, if that's where you're at, it should be heartbreaking for you too. It would be as if someone came up to you and said, and pointed at your dad and said, is that your father? And regardless of, the, again, I'm, not, if, I'm speaking if you have a good relationship with your father, but, and you said this, I don't know him. I don't know who he is because you felt ashamed of him, ashamed of him. As a dad, that would break my heart. My, one of my kids did that. It breaks the Lord's heart whenever you talk, you feel ashamed of him. The Lord recognized the possibility of shame and solemnly warned against it. Thus, in verse 26, verse 26 is meant to be a wake-up call to those who are wavering in their commitment to Jesus Christ. If you spend your time in this world trying to hide the fact what you really believed, that you, that you really believed some things Jesus said, then Jesus will hide his glory from you. Is that the price that you're willing to pay? Worldly glory? Heavenly glory? Which matters most to you? The world's ways or God's ways? Which are you following? The world's wealth or Christ's reward? Which will you receive? Then Jesus made this jaw-dropping statement in verse 27. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Even to this day, this statement still puzzles people because it doesn't seem like anyone has seen the kingdom of God. But then again, maybe we have. At that time, the disciples were expecting the kingdom to bring victory and political domination Today, we expect the kingdom, kingdom to bring final judgment and reward. Our Lord, however, was planning to blow all those expectations away. And well, sure enough, this happened when Jesus showed his disciples a preview 
of the kingdom glory in his transfiguration, which I hope that we'll be able to cover in just a bit. But here's the kicker. He only let them see the kingdom at its beginning point, not at its climax. See, the kingdom came when he, ex- when he was exalted on the cross, when he was glorified in the resurrection, and when he was enthroned in the ascension. This kingdom came at Pentecost, when Pentecost brought previously unknown kingdom power to bear on earth and reaped an unprecedented harvest into kingdom membership. Now, despite of what some may think, it wasn't Peter's confession or the disciples' successful preaching and healing mission that brought the kingdom. No. Only suffering, death, and resurrection of the Son of Man brought the kingdom into view so people could see its power and glory. A power and glory that will be even further magnified when the Son of Man comes in glory. When he comes back with his father's angels to judge the earth. So who will see that kingdom and who will participate in it? It's going to be those who have followed the son of man to the path to the cross. Who have trusted in him, who have believed in him who are willing to forsake everything to trust in him. All right, well, I think we have enough time to cover the next section. So, and so let's go there now and, and we'll see how far we get. So let's pick up in verse 28. About eight days after this conversation... He took Peter, he took along Peter, John, and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. As the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them, overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and at the time told no one what they had seen. This event known as a transfiguration might as well be considered the Father's answer to the question Jesus posed to his disciples in verse 20. But who do you say I am? 
thus accomplishing two things. It strengthened the disciples' convictions about Jesus when his identity was confirmed. And two, it encouraged Jesus just as a major transition, uh, just as a major transition point in his ministry, the journey to Jerusalem was about to begin. We're told that about eight days later, that it was about eight days later that Jesus took Peter, John, and James up to a mountain, on a mountain to pray. As the Lord was praying, his outward appearance began to change. His face glowed bright with radiance, and his robe gleamed with dazzling whiteness. Imagine that scene in your head. Divine glory shone through the earthly Son of Man. Now this amazing event was further underlined, underlined by two of his companions, the great lawgiver and deliverer Moses and the great prophet and sign of end times, Elijah. As Moses introduced Israel to God on the mountain and as Elijah showed the uniqueness of God over all the other gods on a mountain, so Jesus revealed the true nature of God and showed that he was one with the Father. And together, it says that they were discussing, they were talking. And what were they discussing? What were they talking about? About Jesus' departure. Now, in the, in, in the Greek text, that word there, departure, translates as exodus. What he was talking about here was a new exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But note this, that his death here is spoken of as an accomplishment, and that his death, again, is simply an exodus meaning it wasn't a succession of existence, but rather a departure from one place to another. Jesus then received this, this here, this moment here, Jesus received new assurance that his journey to Jerusalem was part of God's plan for his life. Luke then tells us in verse 32 that the three disciples that were with him, sadly, they, they were knocked out. They were asleep while all this began to take place. They were deep, and they were in deep sleep. Now, because of that, they almost missed the greatest moment of revelation in Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, we're not told how, but eventually they did wake up and clearly saw that Jesus was in the company of the two great heroes of Judaism. But more importantly, what they were seeing, what they were witnessing, what they saw was his glory. Now, this glory, this is the glory that belongs to the, in the heavenly realm to the Father, and to the angels. 
In that moment, those three disciples got a preview of the reigning king and judge before he fully entered his glory. This then confirmed, definitively confirmed for them Jesus' divine nature. Now, in an effort to, to preserve the sacred character of that occasion, to make the most out of the moment, to not let that moment slip by, Peter proposed erecting three shelters. Some translations may say tabernacles, tabernacles, one in honor of Jesus, one of Moses, and one for Elijah. But this idea was based on zeal and knowledge. And ze- I mean, that was based on zeal without, not without knowledge. And zeal without knowledge is dangerous. It reminds me of a quote I once read that said, zeal without knowledge is fire without light. So maybe his thinking was this. This is just me thinking here. It's, maybe Peter was thinking this. This is how it should be. Forget this idea of suffering, being rejected and crucified. Let's build some tabernacles so we can live this way with the glorified Jesus all the time. Peter's suggestion meant that not only, not, not only would Jesus avoid the future cross, but so would Peter. Also, in suggesting three tabernacles, Peter made the mistake of putting Jesus on an equal level with Moses and Elijah with one tabernacle for each of them. However, before he was done speaking, a voice came from the cloud that overshadowed them, acknowledging Jesus as his son, his chosen one. He then told them this, listen to him. And after that voice had spoken, Moses and Elijah had disappeared. And the only one standing there was Jesus. This is exactly how it'll be like. This how it'll be like in his kingdom. He will have the preeminence in all things. He will not share his glory. The disciples left with a sense of awe so profound that they did not discuss this event with others until the cross and the resurrection validated it. But as impressive as this existence, this experience was, it, it, it in itself did not change the lives of disciples as much as being born again did. Being born again by the Spirit of God is the great miracle and is the greatest display of the glory of God. And let me also add this. Our experience shouldn't be the basis for a consistent Christian life. This can only come through the Word of God. You see, experience, experiences, they come and they go. 
but the word remains. Your recollection of the past, of a past experience will fade. And as they fade, they start, they stop making a, an impact. They stop making that great impact on your life they once had. The further, again, you get from those events, the less of an impact they'll have. But see, the word of God never fades. It never changes. It stays constant. It's the same. It will always be powerful. This is why the Father said, listen to him. And why Peter made the same emphasis on the word in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. Our own personal transfiguration comes from our inner renewal. And that comes from the word. As I close here, let me, let me make this observation here. When God makes a clear and factual statement, when he speaks truth, when he speaks powerfully, when he speaks loudly, loudly, we should listen. We should listen carefully at what he has to say. And we need to obey. There are three things that he says here that he emphatically states. And if God, if this is, if I believe this is truly God speaking here. And if you believe the same thing, then what he says ought to be, ought to transform you. You should never be the same again after hearing them. He said, Jesus is his son. Jesus, he said Jesus was his son. No one else, only him, his only begotten son. He sent him for us. He sent his son to come. I mean, I can, go, again, go on and on about what that means, but I encourage you to, to, to discover for yourself what God meant by saying that Jesus he is my son. And then he says that Jesus is the chosen one. He's chosen him out of everybody in the entire world. Anybody that ever existed, that existed at that time, and that will ever exist after that. He has chosen him. Again, I challenge you to take the time to discover what that means. And lastly, he tells us to listen to him. This means not just listening to him, but obeying him. Are you living that way right now? Are you obeying him? Are you living your life that's honoring him that's glorifying him now again I'm not saying that you need to that you ought to be living a perfect life we're all going to make mistakes but I'm saying are you making an effort are you making a daily effort 
to listen to him through his word, through preaching, through maybe prayer. Are you listening to him? There's so much more. There's so much he wants to tell you personally. You, there's so much he, he, he's, he wants to tell us as a church, but there's also so much that he wants to tell you personally. The hard part about listening is obeying. But if, if you can do that, then again, your life will begin to be radically changed. We have three opinions, three, I guess you can call them opinions about the truth about Jesus. We had what the crowd said, what the disciples said, and what God said. We want to know the truth about Jesus. God clearly states it, but he also will continue, he, he just, tells us, he wants to continue telling us the truth about his son throughout his word. We need to listen to God. We need to listen to what he says about his son. Will you do that? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for you, for what you've done, Lord, and We come before you now and we confess with our hearts, Lord, that you, Jesus, are Lord. That you are God's Son. May we trust in you. Forgive us for those moments, those times we've been ashamed. Wash us clean, Lord, forgive us. And help us now to, to live boldly for you, especially as this new year begins. Let us leave all those things, all those horrible things in the past and strive on and move forward to, to what lies ahead. You have so much in store for us and you want to be part of it. You want to show every single person here the extent of your love, the, the weight of your mercy and your compassion. I pray that this upcoming year that they will begin to truly see it, understand it, that they will begin to always, well, begin to draw closer and nearer to you, Lord. If you're watching and listening, and I encourage you to drop everything you're doing and and accept and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Even if you're 
at the end of your life, if you're, if you're the kind of if you're the person I described that had has had all the riches, all the comforts, and all the luxuries, and all the toys, that all that won't get you anywhere. All that will do is you're losing your life. But now you have an opportunity to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Confess to him that you're a sinner. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Confess him with your mouth as Lord. Open your heart. Open the door to your heart to him today. Lord, we want to see your glory. We're looking forward to it. We love you. We praise you. In the name of your Son, beautiful Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.